This is the TSN MMA Show with Aaron Bronstetter and Bazooka Joe Valtellini. Dear Lord, UFC 239 has so many things that happened. I don't even want to do one of my cold intros because we've got so much to talk about on this week's edition of the TSN MMA Show. From top to bottom, what an incredible card UFC 239 was. So many things happened, so many noteworthy things, so many things that changed the careers of many of these great athletes, whether they're going to be coming back in the future, whether or not they are going to be contenders in the future. Just so much to digest from this particular event. I was out in Las Vegas covering it for International Fight Week, uh, quite the week. And um, if you feel listening to the show, you've probably seen the video of me interviewing Israel Adesanya and him absolutely going berserk when Jorge Masvidal had his record-breaking flying knee knockout of Ben Askren five seconds into the first round. Shout out to Jonathan Goulet, who for many years had to sit by and be the person, the Canadian, unfortunately, on the wrong end of the fastest knockout in history to Dwayne Ludwig. He can rest now. Now it's Ben Askren, a formerly undefeated fighter, going into this fight undefeated, an Olympian. And he's on the wrong side of history. Ben Askren, five seconds. There's no prop bet that would have come through for that. You know, nobody would have guessed that. Five seconds. Wow. Unreal. You know, that wrestling instinct kicks in when a guy's running at you at full speed. You, you know you have a wrestling advantage. You go for that double, and then you get nailed. I feel bad for Ben Askren. But, you know, he's owned it. He's done a good job of kind of constructing the narrative around him and uh, how he feels about this after the fight. He's still staying true to being Ben Askren, you know? No hard feelings. It was a good knee. But, you know, he still doesn't like Jorge Masvidal. Still going to be calling everybody else out. But now people will have something beyond you have weird hair when they're insulting him. They can say you have weird hair and you were knocked out in five seconds. And that's what people will use now as their ammunition against Ben Askren. Because before it was just his hair. Nobody could really comment on his fight credentials. He had never been finished, never been knocked out, never lost in mixed martial arts. Now it's not just the hair they can make fun of. So, you know, congratulations to the rest of the welterweight division who have had really no answer for how to uh, approach the uh, subject of the fighting credentials of Ben Askren until now. But, wow, what an event. So many things happened at this particular event that, you know, you have to just go from top to bottom and, uh, and go through it. So why don't we do that? Why don't we start with the main event? John Jones versus Tiago Santos. Split decision. The first split decision win of John Jones's career. 48-47, 48-47, and 47-48. Well, 48-47 for Santos. I hate saying 47-48. It sounds awkward. But John Jones, disappointed, in my opinion. Um, I thought that he could have absolutely dominated that fight based on what we saw. I mean, Tiago Santos blew out his entire knee in the first round. ACL, PCL, the works. Meniscus, for according to reports, all of that. And John Jones couldn't finish... You tell me, and people got upset with me. They go, why aren't you giving Tiago Santos credit? I said, maybe John, maybe something was up with John Jones. I said, something was off with him. And uh, maybe it was Holly Holm losing. Why don't you give credit to Tiago Santos? Why are you taking credit away from Tiago Santos for this remarkable accomplishment of going the distance with John Jones and, and getting a split against the greatest fighter of all time? Because it shouldn't have gone to the scorecards if you are John Jones and you're the best fighter of all time. 
People think John Jones is the best fighter of all time. Most people think John Jones is the best fighter of all time. And if you've watched this sport for many years, I don't blame you for thinking John Jones is the best fighter of all time. I think John Jones is the best fighter of all time. So if you took the best fighter of all time and you put them against any human being on the planet, put them in a cage together, and the other human being blows out their entire knee in the first round, and you don't think that John Jones should smell that blood figure out a way to get a finish as soon as humanly possible and is unable to do that and that that's a problem, not a problem with John Jones, but a credit to Thiago Santos. It is a credit to Thiago Santos that he was able to go five rounds with that brutal injury in the first round. Kudos to him. All respect in the world to Thiago Santos. Thiago Santos is a stud for lasting five rounds with that kind of injury against the greatest of all time. John Jones, on the other hand, should have found a way to finish that fight. He didn't go for takedowns. He didn't particularly target that knee over and over again. He targeted it, sure, but he didn't specifically hone in on that weakness of his opponent and go for it. The John Jones that smells blood and finishes fighters like he did against Gustafson back in December, that's the John Jones that people want to see and expect to see and hope to see in those situations. Period. End of story. If you have a debate for that and you think that Tiago Santos is a, a god among men and after breaking all of his stuff in the first round can hang with him for five rounds and there's not something off with John Jones, you are delusional. Period. End of conversation. Delusional. Because Tiago Santos, it could have been Tiago Santos, it could have been Cormier, it could have been Francis Ngannou, it could have been any fighter on the planet. If you have a compromised knee like that in the first round, John Jones should finish you. That is the expectation if you are the greatest of all time. And I don't think John Jones lost that fight. There were some people that scored it the other way, and that's fine. And I said to a colleague of mine, uh, Rafael Mourinho, who I saw um, when I was checking out of my hotel the next morning, and I said to him, "All Santos, if Santos would have just thrown two flurries per round in that fight, just gone one, two, three, four, thrown fast punches, regardless of whether they made contact with Jones or not, he wins that fight. Because that's how close those rounds were, and that's how little happened in those rounds that would decide who won those particular rounds. Now, I thought that John Jones uh, won rounds two, three, and four. Tiago Santos, I gave the fifth round, and I don't know if I did that just because of uh, you know, a bias for the fact that Santos had lasted that long. I thought that Santos landed the better strikes in the fifth round, but Jones probably dictated the pace of that fifth round regardless. So, with all of that in mind, you know, I, I think that Jones won that fight, and I think that Jones, like Dana White said after the event, I don't think you can score that fight for Tiago Santos based on what we saw. You can, you know, I don't think that that's a good scorecard. Had Tiago won, though, I think you can make a case for it. I think that you can say... Listen, not a whole lot happened in this fight, and I just thought Tiago did a little bit more in this round, in whatever, round three, round four. I mean, not all, not all the judges. I think two of the judges gave John Jones the fifth round. It's similar to Holly versus Cyborg. Like, Holly versus Cyborg, Holly's not expected to win, and Cyborg pieces her up. But if, if two of those judges would have given, given Holly home the fifth round, and that was a round that I thought she did particularly well in, I think it was the only round I gave her in that fight, Holly Holm wins that fight by split decision. And it's the worst decision ever if that happens. Ever. But John Jones should have finished Tiago Santos. Should have done it in the first or second round. Once that injury happened, he should not have had a chance to win that fight. And that's why I think that there's some disappointment around John Jones in that fight. And John Jones, after the fact, in our scrum, he said, maybe I'm drinking my own Kool-Aid. Maybe I just think I'm untouchable again, and that's bad for me. I need to, I need to feel nervous going into these fights, and I just didn't feel nervous. And I wanted to show that I could outstrike Tiago Santos and stand with him for five rounds. Fair enough.
I think that's as much an admission of your own kind of shortcoming going into that fight as it would have been if he said, man, Holly, Holly losing really rattled me. I was really rattled. Because there was some sort of mental barrier that stopped him from being aggressive and, st- and finishing that fight. And I think that mental barrier, as he admitted to after the fight, was that he just didn't feel like he was going to lose that fight regardless of what happened. He, there was no urgency in his mind. He didn't feel like Thiago Santos was really going to have a shot at beating him. And he almost did. And Jones acknowledges that. He said, you know, he said it was a split decision. And when they read Thiago's name first, he was nervous. And rightfully so. He should have been nervous. He could have put his foot on the gas pedal and, and won that fight, I think, easily. He was way bigger than Santos, way more talented than Santos, much more, you know, a much broader range of talents than Santos. And that's just, it just surprised me. It surprised me that John Jones was not able to finish that fight. Now, does it mean that Jones is, you know, not himself, not the same fighter? I don't think so. I think that Jones, when he rises to the occasion, will still be able to do what he did to Gustafson back in December. And then people said, oh, you know, the fight with Smith was close. No, it wasn't. Go and look at the striking count on that fight. Like, Jones outlanded him by almost 100 strikes. That was not a close fight. From bell to bell, that was not a close fight. This fight was a close fight. This fight I could understand if you gave it to Santos. No, no judge in their right mind would have given it to Smith. And Gustafson, you know, Jones had a, a great strategy for Gustafson, implemented it, and won. And we've since seen Gustafson retire. So is John Jones no longer... Like, that's... If Jones was smart, and he had, like, a long-term plan... This would be the best. This is just like what happened with OSP. Remember, he comes back, fights OSP for five rounds. He puts on a bunch of muscle mass, and he's just, he, he gets tired, and he's not as good as we remember him being. Then, in the fight, when he goes to fight Cormier, people have this expectation that he's just not the same guy and that Cormier is going to be able to beat him, that there's rust. If he did that to Santos to make it look like he's not the same guy, so that if he fights Cormier again, people have more of a more belief that Cormier is going to win, and then he goes and blows Cormier out of the water, which could very well happen. That's a brilliant move. Of course, you're risking losing that fight, and I don't think that that would be an intentional thing. But if you wanted to go five rounds and maybe not look as good as you could to try to make it look like you're more human, and then you're, so you're going to blow someone out in the future in, in a super fight, maybe you know I, that's probably overthinking things. But it would be a pretty pretty savvy move from a business standpoint to do that. I don't think that's what happened, but it would be. Uh, a pretty savvy move. Co-main event, Amanda Nunes versus Holly Holm. And recently, ha- Nunes has done something that you got to admire, and it's something that John Jones has done in the past as well, which is she takes her opponent's strength and beats them at their own game. You saw it happen against Shevchenko. Five-round chess match, striking chess match back and forth. When, when Shevchenko went to hit her, she wasn't there. And she, she had great movement. She used footwork and speed to beat someone who was known for footwork and speed. Then Cyborg. Goes right at Cyborg, gets in her face, uses power to knock out Chris Cyborg. That's Chris Cyborg's MO, is to get in your face and overwhelm you with strikes so that there's nothing you can do. She flipped that. She flipped the script and did that to Cyborg. Now against Holly Holm, she basically beats Holly Holm in a kickboxing match. And that's what Holly Holm is best known for, is her kickboxing, her vicious head kicks. She finishes Holly Holm with a head kick. And that's and Holly Holm's finishes in the UFC, I think all of them, I'm going to go and look, I believe have come by head kick if I'm... If I'm not mistaken, there's the Beshkohea one and the Ronda one, but I, I don't know. Yeah, head kick and punch, Beshkohea. And then head kick, Ronda Rousey. So that's those are her only finishes in the UFC. I think now we need to look at Holly Holm. And Dana White said after the fight that he thinks maybe she should retire. She's 
38 now? 37. 37 years old. 38 in a couple months. And when you look at what she's done in the UFC, aside from, like, aside from the Ronda win, it's not super impressive. I mean, that Beshko hand knockout was fantastic. But look, let's look at it from the broad. This is something I wanted to discuss with Holly Holm today. Let's look at, this, at how she became such a star in the UFC. So split decision win against Raquel Pennington in her first UFC fight. She's, she said, comes into the UFC, she's 7-0, and and she beats a fighter that is 5-4. and in Raquel Pennington, five and four, and Holm has this expectation of being potentially a future champion. Split decision. Goes and beats Marion Renault, who's older than she is, by a unanimous decision later that summer. And then, and and I'll say this: when Holly Holm was signed by the UFC, I said this is very well going to be the person that beats Ronda Rousey. Her striking is going to be too like if Ronda Rousey thinks she's a good boxer and she's going to get in there with Holly Holm, Holly Holm's going to overwhelm her and beat her. But the problem was, they put Holly Holm against Ronda in Holly's third fight. And at that point in time, Ronda was crushing everybody in the first round. And she was making it look easy, even against like an, a wrestling Olympian like a Sarah McMahon. Minute and six seconds with, with knees to the body. And then, you, you, you know, you start thinking that she thinks her striking is, you know, her new bread and butter. But she gets, still gets a submission against Kat Zingano in 14 seconds and with another armbar. Knocks out Betch Gohea, you know, two months later, or a couple months later. Sorry, I read April instead of August. Uh, later that year. And then they put her up against Holly Holm. And my thought process was this is way too soon for Holly Holm. Holly Holm was coming off of two very uh, pedestrian wins. You know, we're expecting to see more. We saw those head, that head kick over Juliana Werner in Legacy. We saw how she was finishing fighters in LFC when she was there. We expected dynamite. So then, when that fight was booked with Rousey, I was thinking, man, I think this is just too much too soon. I'm not, you know, I didn't obviously didn't bet on Ronda Rousey or anything because the odds were so long. Uh, kudos to my colleague Robin Black, who actually called it. He called it before the fight on uh, when he was working at the Fight Network. He said he thought that Holly Holm was going to beat Ronda Rousey, and he was right. One minute, less than one minute into the second round, head kicks Ronda Rousey, knocks her out. But, as impressive as that was at the time, can we come to the conclusion that that was just right place at the right time? Looking back at Rousey's career, and her UFC career, and the opponents that she beat, let's go top to bottom from, from starting at UFC 157. Liz Carmouche, flyweight. Misha Tate, former flyweight. Sarah McMahon. Not known for striking. More of a grappler, and if you grapple with Ronda Rousey, you're going to get tossed and, and finished. And I thought McMahon might have also had a shot at beating Ronda Rousey, but that's neither here nor there. Alexis Davis, flyweight. Kat Zingano, great win. I mean, Kat Zingano is a, is a, is a beast. That was a really good win. Uh, so, I, you know, I can't take that one away from her. Uh, Beshkohea, we know that Beshkohea is not fantastic. That was, that was probably her easiest matchup uh, since joining the UFC. Now she's fighting a big 35er in Holly Holm. And she had with Zingano, so, I mean, again, don't take that away. A big 35er, striking-based fighter that knows footwork. Former boxer, former boxing champion, multiple-time boxing champion. She has footwork out the wazoo. I mean, she knows, she knows what to do. She knows how to get in and out, and she knows how to avoid the takedowns. And Ronda did grab her, and Holly 
to the credit of her coaches, knew exactly what to do, knew exactly how to not get uh, put on her back and get thrown into an armbar. Stifles that, tires Ronda out. This is a Ronda Rousey that was highly emotional going into that fight. You remember at the, at the, the face-off before that event, Ronda ran right up to her and got right in her face, was talking all kinds of smack about Holly. Holly was just playing it cool the whole time, staying calm. Ronda was a superstar at that point in time, had tons of media obligations, never, never turned them down, was really friendly with the media, really media savvy. When I say friendly with the media, I should, I, should pair, I should rephrase that and say she was always willing to do a lot of media and always willing to get out there and do talk shows. And, you know, when the UFC asked her to do something, she was a good soldier. That's for sure. And you can definitely come to that conclusion when she fought Amanda Nunes a year later. But Holly Holm gets that win. And maybe it's a, a case of the right place at the right time. Because if you look at what Holly, what's happened to Holly since then... She didn't want to stay back and wait for the rematch. She wanted to get busy. She wanted to fight again soon. So uh, about six months later, she's back in there five months later against Misha Tate and loses the title. From there, lost to Shevchenko. Lost to Jermaine Durandame at uh, UFC 208 for the featherweight title, a fight that a lot of people thought that Holly might have won. But regardless of that, lost to Jermaine Durandame, who headlines this weekend's card in Sacramento. We'll get to that a little bit later on. Then, Betch Gohea in Singapore. Perfect fight to get back on the horse. You got a striking based fighter who takes a lot of risks and uh, she gets caught. Then she gets the cyborg fight and she's willing to take the cyborg fight. So, I mean, one thing I won't take away from Holly Holm is her, her willingness to step in there against tough, tough challenges. Ends up beating cyborg or losing to cyborg by unanimous decision. Which, as I pointed out earlier, if two judges gave that card, that scorecard to Holly Holm, she wins by a split decision, which still blows my mind to this day. Because that was a lopsided fight. From there, about six months later, fights Megan Anderson in Chicago. And uh, uses wrestling, uses grappling to take down Megan Anderson. The best 45er outside of Chris Cyborg. Because pretty much she was the only other 45er outside of Chris Cyborg. But Megan Anderson's a good fighter, a really good striker. But again, when you're putting Holly Holm against good strikers that aren't elite strikers, it puts Holly in something of an advantageous position. And, you know, even with Anderson being an advantage, you know, uh, having a, a decent striking pedigree, she had no way of stuffing Holly's takedowns, and Holly was able to implement from top control and, and really show that she had some more assets that she possessed in terms of fighting and that she's learning and growing as a fighter. But then the loss to Nunes is kind of a, she gets knocked back down to earth, literally and figuratively. And now Dana White, I mean, if you look at her record now in the UFC, it's it's... 500s, 5 and 5. Now, again, this is somebody who has taken tough fights. So a 5 and 5 record is, uh, you know, it's nothing to scoff at when you're losing to the likes of Amanda Nunes, Misha Tate, Shevchenko, Durandame, Cyborg. Like, those are your five losses. Those are all former champions or current champions. Two current champions, two former champions, three former champions. So, I mean, that's, that's still, she's fighting the best of the best. And I, I'm not going to say that Holly was overrated or anything. I don't, I don't agree with that. But I do think that her win over Ronda Rousey could have been a symptom of just being at the right place at the right time and being the right person to do it. Because Ronda Rousey at that time was Mike Tyson. You know, people laugh at Ronda now or whatever, and they say her striking was bad or whatever. She was the MMA equivalent of Mike Tyson. She was must-see TV. She was, you know, don't blink, you're going to lose in, in a minute. You know, if you get past one minute with Ronda Rousey, you're doing a good job. 
And people will laugh and say, oh, well, how can you compare to Mike Tyson? Look at her striking. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm saying she had the same aura about her, the same uh, kind of appeal where, you know, if you watch a Ronda Rousey fight, you're going to get a fast finish. And it's going to be a brutal finish. And she's going to devastate somebody. And she was doing just that. But, again, she had started to fall in love with her striking a little bit. And when you fall in love with your striking, you're facing, uh, you know, a Golden Gloves boxer and somebody who has all these head kick knockouts and really striking is their bread and butter. It's not going to go well for you at times. And uh, in that particular time, it did not go well for Ronda Rousey. So what will Holly Holm do from here? I would like to see Holly Holm continue. I mean, she won't. She might not ever be a champion. Like, if Nunez is the champion at 135 and 145, unless she vacates one of those belts and there's another champion that comes along, you know, maybe that could be her last-ditch effort to become uh, a two-time UFC champion. But for now, she's turning 38. And uh, what I'd like to see is just put her in fights with lower-level bantamweight fighters. Like, have her get some more... If you want to build her back up, you can, is what I'm saying. You can build Holly Holm back up, because I still think Holly Holm has the talent to beat a lot of the 135ers in the UFC right now. If you go down that list of the ranked 135ers, I think that there's she has a good chance of devastating some, some opponents and knocking them out. But to Dana's credit, I do agree that it's going to be really hard for her to get back into another title picture. She's had so many opportunities. I mean, she has lost. She has won one title fight, the one against Ronda, and she has lost four title fights. So, you know, that's not a very good track record in that regard, and I, I don't know how easy it's going to be for her to get back into that mix. Now, I know that one issue that Dana White also has is dealing with her manager, Lenny Fresquez, her only client, his only client in MMA, as far as I know, at least high-level high, um, product, high-level client. So when you keep that in mind... And and you know that there's been some issues in terms of you know working out purses and all that. Dana might want her to take a step away and and leave the sport because maybe they don't want to pay her to face some of the lower level fighters in the 135 division. But uh, I think that she still has it. I think that Holly can still get wins. I don't think she can get wins against the highest of the highest caliber, but I still think she has some wins in her. So that's going to be interesting to see. And um, I think that's going to really determine what is left for Holly Holm is. You know, if she can get back on the horse, win two, three fights in a row, these divisions are thin enough where she can get another title shot. And then, of course, we have Jorge Masvidal knocking out Ben Askren in five seconds. It still sounds weird to say it. Unbelievable. Five seconds. Just absolutely unreal. So when you look at uh, what happened in that particular fight, you look at Masvidal... He was practicing that over and over again. Just going for that flying knee. Showing, they showed it in practice with Mike Brown holding the pads and my, or Mike Brown standing there and someone holding the pads and him, him going for it. And uh, Ben Askren said he had a, a hunch that he might do something crazy off the top. Now, if that's the case, shooting for a takedown is not a good idea. Because you would have to imagine that his, if he goes for something crazy, you're going to have to catch him like a baseball in order to, you know, if he's coming at you at full speed and you want to use your wrestling to, to stifle that, you need to be have pin-perfect timing. And I don't care how good of a wrestler you are, you know, if striking is not your best asset, you can get caught. And he got caught. Now, another thing to emerge from this was uh, I was interviewing Israel Adesanya when this happened. And there's a video that has been seen by over a million people of me interviewing Israel Adesanya. 
and a lot of the most of the people love it. Most of the people think it's great. But I did get some people responding and saying, "This guy looks like he's not. He has no passion for the sport. He didn't. He he didn't take anything away from this great knockout." And at the time, they're correct because I didn't know what had happened. So let let me let me just paint a picture for you since we are an audio medium. I'm standing in front of a UFC backdrop. I've got an interview with Israel Adesanya. I didn't even. I was waiting to interview Israel, and I didn't even know that Askren and Masvidal were in the cage yet. So I'm standing by, you know, I'm waiting for my turn to interview. Because on fight nights, believe it or not, I can't watch every minute of every, of every fight if I'm in the back doing interviews. Because, you know, and, and I had other people, other brainiacs, send me a message saying, why don't, you, why don't you do your interviews in between fights? So if Israel Adesanya is in the room and it's my turn to do an interview, but a fight's about to start, I'm supposed to say to Israel, hey, can you just hang here for a minute? Or tell UFCPR... One sec, I really need to watch this fight. You know, please, you guys can be patient, right? Israel wants to go back to his seats and watch the fights. And that's why he noticed what was going on, because his mind went elsewhere during the interview, and I don't blame him. He wants to see these fights. He was doing me a service, and the UFC was doing me a, a, a great service by giving me time with him. I wasn't even supposed to get time with him. So I'm very grateful that I got time with him, especially given how everything went down. So I'm interviewing him. He's 6'3". There are tripods with cameras in front of me and in front of him. But he's able to see the TV and I'm not. I'm, I'm able to just see my camera. And I'm also in tunnel vision mode because I'm focused on interviewing Israel Adesanya. Israel Adesanya doesn't necessarily need to be totally focused on me. He can be focused on two things at once. He's, he's, not, he's not carrying the load here. He's not the one thinking of the next question. He's, he's just answering what's getting thrown at him. He can, I mean, look at what he does in the cage and, and in the ring when he was doing kickboxing. Like This guy can, can have his mind being two places at once. I mean... Him being able to see the TV is great. Like, and then I'm in the middle of interviewing him. He starts freaking out and hits the floor, and he's, he's going nuts. And I, I'm thinking to myself, something crazy just happened. I just don't know what that is. I'm looking around the room. There's other partner media, and they're all going crazy. So he's freaking out. And I, I'm just, in my mind, I'm thinking, I don't know what happened. So I'm just going to let this organically be what it is and do what it is like that. If you're looking at me and my face looks confused, that's because I'm processing everything that's going on. I have no clue what's happened. And then he goes, is that the fastest knockout ever? I still don't know who knocked out who. I'm assuming it's Masvidal because uh, Ben Askren getting a five-second KO over Masvidal is a lot less likely than Masvidal getting a five-second KO over Askren, even though Askren's undefeated. So I'm watching. I'm just kind of letting this all happen in front of me. And I'm looking at... Israel, and he's freaking out, and I'm just holding the mic. Let him do, let him do the work. I don't know what's going on, so I'm just going to let him do the work, and he did. Now, another thing people commented on was that another outlet came in and put their microphone in and started asking him questions, which I think is completely unkosher and uncool, and they acknowledged that. I got an apology from Caroline Pierce from BT um, about a day later saying, and I mean, I don't know if it's because people were kind of calling her out on social media, but saying, listen, I, you know, I, I, take, a, I take responsibility for this. This you know, wasn't, I was kind of caught up in the moment. It wasn't, wasn't really cool, and you know, she, she gets it. it it's fine. It's, it's water under the bridge, and it's totally fine. I've covered events with Caroline in the past, and it's, these things happen. It's not a big deal. Um, so at that point in time, I just let Israel go. And then when he's, he's done, he says, okay, I'm out, and he walks away. And I say, Israel Adesanya, you know, he's facing... Robert Whitaker at a venue TBD UFC 243. And that's it. And then I put it up and it explodes. And I think I, I kind of knew that I had something special, obviously, once that happened because Israel was so over the top and so good and just like he was just, he was 
eating and digesting that moment. And if you don't know much about Israel, he's such a big fan of the sport. Like he loves following, not not just competing. Obviously, he's, a, he's he loves competing, but he's a fan of the sport. He follows everything and he watches lots of videos. And he's he's really, you know, he's invested. It's not just him and his career that he cares about. He he's invested in the whole big picture. He loves following the sport. I think he loves being a star in the sport because of how much he reveres. This, the sport and how much he reveres the UFC and how much he loved. Like, he watched all these guys rise, and now he's one of the people that's rising. So he gets a lot out of that. And um, so, yeah, he was he was freaking out, and rightfully so. Because I watched the replay, and I see what's going on, and he starts planking and all this stuff, and Israel's freaking out. And I'm just soaking it all in. I'm just, Like, I don't want to be the story there. I want to just let Israel be the thing that people are focused on. I don't want to come in there and be like, oh, my goodness, what a knockout, you know. It would, that would come off as corny. I, I want Israel to be the show, and he was. So uh, I happened to be at the right place at the right time. Like like Holly Holm, I alluded to earlier, was might have been at the right place at the right time with Ronda Rousey and been, been the right person to do it. Maybe I was the right person at the right place at the right time to do it because I just wanted to let it breathe. And um, I hope people understand that, and I hope people uh, can understand why I looked so lost in the moment because I was lost in the moment. And I, you know, I'm, I admit that I was caught off guard by what had happened, and I, I'm sure any reasonable human being would be. So I just kind of let it let it breathe. That was that was my goal at that moment. Once once it had happened, it became the Israel Adesanya show. So uh, thank you to Israel Adesanya for for being there with me to experience that moment and for uh, you know just being him. Thank you, Israel Adesanya, for being you and for just for loving this sport as much as anybody on the planet because he reacted like I'm sure a lot of people reacted at home, and I got to be there and witness that and live that. And uh, I appreciate Israel for that for for just being there with me when that happened because it was just an awesome experience. And since then, it's just been an avalanche of uh, of people following me on Instagram, following me on Twitter. So if you have discovered the show for the first time as a result of that, thank you. Thank you for following me, and I'll, I'll do my best not to let you down. Um, I, get, I get a lot of great access to these great fighters and to Dana White, and um, I hope that I'm doing uh, a good job, and I, I always strive to improve and... Um, so thank you for coming along on this ride with me. I appreciate that. But uh, now we can digest this and figure out where we go from here. So crazy impressive for Masvidal, obviously. Five-second KO. The rest of the division, though, is still up in the air. And the reason why is because a good friend of his and training partner, Colby Covington, has a date on August the 3rd with Robbie Lawler. Now, a lot of people think that uh, Masvidal should get the next title shot as a result of this. But I think that if you look at that, you're being a little bit short-sighted, and I'll tell you why. Because, yes, it was uh, a crazy five-second knockout, and it's an unbelievable knockout. But let's go and look at what happened with Colby Covington. So he was the interim champion. He had that, he got, had that strip from him in order for the division to move forward with Darren Till versus Kamaru Usman, which I think in hindsight, and or sorry, Darren Till versus uh, uh, Tyron Woodley was the champion at the time, which I think in hindsight was a really dumb move because you had... Covington versus Woodley in your lap. But they needed a main event. That was the main event they wanted to book. We move forward. However, Colby Covington in the UFC is 8-1. and one. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven and one. Seven and one. The one loss coming to Worley Alves uh, via guillotine choke in the first round. But his most recent wins, you got Max Griffin, Brian Barberena, Dong Young Kim, Demian Maya. Rafael Dos Anjos, and then if he beats Lawler, Robbie Lawler. And that is quite a streak. That is quite a streak. Now, the, I guess, situation at hand is, I mean, the, the weird thing is you heard Usman recently saying that he thought that maybe Askren would get the next title shot. 
a lot of people had overlooked Jorge Masvidal in this fight. Thought that, you know, he was just going to get wrestled for five rounds or maybe submitted on the ground or, you know, any of those potential scenarios. But we saw what happened. It was a crazy knockout. Now Jorge Masvidal is like a legend. You know, people people love Jorge Masvidal all of a sudden. I mean, I think if they didn't love him before, they love him now. I think that's a pretty safe thing to say. So do you bypass Colby Covington again and give it to Jorge Masvidal? Now, the crazy thing about that is, like, these guys are good friends, right? And they're going to have to figure that out. But uh, another weird thing about it is if you look at Helwani's show on uh, the other day and you look at view counts, you have 200K for Mike Brown, who coached Masvidal. You've got 320K for Colby Covington. You've got 1.7 million for Ben Askren. And you've got 476,000 for, for Masvidal. So the, the discrepancy between Masvidal and Colby Covington is not that big. Which is another weird one is you've got Francis again with 32,000. <laughs> That's pretty crazy. That's unbelievable. Um, but Covington and Masvidal, I mean, given that Masvidal's the hot thing right now, that's not that, you know, much more than Colby Covington in terms of view count. So, I mean, can Covington reclaim that title shot with a good win over Robbie Lawler? The other issue with Covington is that if you look at his last four wins, they're all by decision. Does he need a finish against Robbie Lawler in order to get that next title shot? And that's another thing that we need to keep in mind. If he scores a finish over Lawler, you you can almost guarantee he's going to get the title shot if he scores a nice finish over Lawler, but I don't think that's the expectation. So, a lot to consider right now in that division. The problem with Masvidal is, is I mean, he's 3-2 and two in his last five, right? He's lost to Wonderboy. Um... So when you, when you look at what, and he lost to Demian Maia. So if you look at what he, you know, his recent resume, it's not as hot as a guy like a Covington. So right now the division's kind of up in the air, and I'm interested to see how it plays out. I, I don't want to anoint anybody as the next challenger right now. I think we need to wait and see. I think we need to take a wait and see approach, see what happens on August the third, and then make our determination. Because until then, we don't really know what is going to happen with the. That division, and I, I think that we also don't know when Usman's going to be ready, so uh, we go from there. Uh, Jan Bohovitz, which is or Bohovic, which is how I found out his uh, last name is pronounced from the man himself, defeats Luke Rockhold, second round, minute and forty second in. He really had him rattled at the end of the first round. I think Herb Dean uh, did a good job at the end of that round. You know, he came out and said the kick was thrown before the bell. And thus the kick was legal, and that kick was really the kick that changed the fight because it hit him, Rockhold in the back of the head, and it rattled him. And uh, I think that that obviously is what changed the fight. Now, after the event, Dana White comes out and says, I think that Luke Rockhold should retire. That I wholeheartedly disagree with. I think that, I mean, if he wants to, listen, I I disagree with any fighter being told to retire. I think that if they want to continue, they should have the right to continue. But, I mean, look look at his last... Last four is one and three, and that's tough because that's over the last three years. He's won one fight, and it was against David Branch, who he was a big favorite over. But you look at who he lost to. It was Bisping, and it was Romero, so two of the top guys at the time in the division. I mean, he was the champion when he lost to Bisping, and Bisping took that fight on short notice and managed to get a win. But uh, Romero, I think uh, that loss was a clear loss. And then you look at at Jan, and it was his first time fighting at light heavyweight against a, a top guy at light heavyweight. And uh, the power was just too much for him. The big issue, I think, for Luke Rockhold is his chin. I think that his chin... I mean, David Branch dropped him in the first round. I think that his chin is is 
kind of done. I hate to say it, and and you know you can try to refute that if you'd like, but given the recent evidence, you know the last four fights he's been knocked out in three of them, and the one that he won, he was dropped in the first by by David Branch. So it's hard. I mean, the proof is kind of in the pudding for Luke Rockhold, and that's the tricky part with him going forward. Because what can he do? What what is his ceiling right now? He's, he's making a lot of money as a Ralph Lauren polo model. He could probably make a lot of money as a full-time model. It's a handsome man. And um, I just think that he needs to think about his long-term health and whether or not there's an upside for him to continue in the sport. Now, if he just loves the sport and he loves doing it and he feels like he's getting better at combat club and he wants to show that he still has it, that's by all means, please. That's his decision, and I think that he has every right to exercise that decision. But I do also think that, based on what we've seen lately, that Luke Rockhold's best days are probably behind him. you got to remember how much of a killer this guy was. I mean, and the thing that's scary about it is that it might be Vitor Belfort with that crazy spinning heel kick that, that badly affected that chin, and Belfort was on TRT at the time. And if that's the case, that's tragic. And, I mean, you look at Bisping's career, and Bisping felt victim to the same kind of thing. A lot of people using performance-enhancing drugs that really delayed him from getting that championship that he so coveted and was, you know, it looked like he was going to retire as one of the best fighters to never win a championship or even fight for a championship. Ends up getting that opportunity and coming through and getting the championship, and he was inducted into the Hall of Fame this past weekend. But uh, that could have all changed. But I think that the chin of Luke Rockhold, since then, since that Vitor knockout, and uh, obviously since the Bisping knockout, is certainly suspect. So uh, those are things to consider. Because looking at the, the after the Belfort fight, he didn't fight a lot of people with big one-punch knockout power. I mean, Tim Boach kind of has it, but Tim Boach is a, is a whole level below Luke Rockhold. Costa, Costa Phillip, who doesn't have it. Bisping turned out, you know, didn't really have one-punch knock, knockout power, but, you know, if you look at his resume, but he did manage to knock Rockhold out with that picture-perfect left hook. And you look at uh, Lyoto Machida, who had knockout power, but, uh, you know, also, he had to hit you at the right time, and Rockhold was a little bit too savvy for that. And then, of course, there's Weidman, who doesn't really have that one-punch knockout power either. So, you know, now that he's fighting guys that do have big power, and Jan, Blo- Jan uh, Blahovic doesn't have necessarily the best knockout power, but he chipped away at him. It wasn't a one-punch knockout. He hit him with that big head kick to the back of the head, threw off his equilibrium, and then in the second round got that big KO finish and, and had dropped him prior to that as well. So... um where Luke Rockhold goes from here is anyone's guess. Dana White thinks he should retire. I think that it's really you got to put the ball in his court, and if he wants to show that he still has it, I think he should have every right to do so. Uh, Michael Chiesa defeats Diego Sanchez, and the big storyline behind this was that Diego Sanchez had that very strange situation with his coach. He had this this coach that had never coached MMA before, had all these you know weird techniques, and uh, that's just a bad idea. Yeah, I mean you're, you're getting into a cage with another individual. And uh, Chiesa exploited that 30-26 on all cards. And uh, a nice win for Michael Chiesa, who continues to move up the ranks at uh, at 170 and has been a lot of fun to watch. And there's a lot happier to deal with. I mentioned to him after he beat Diego Sanchez, I go, you're a real pleasure to work with at 170. He used to cut from low 190s to 155. That's just ugh, that's just wild. He's not the biggest guy at welterweight, but he's certainly not the smallest guy either. Uh, prelims, Arnold Allen beats Gilbert Melendez. That was a tough one to watch. It was just like, it was similar to watching that fight. Not Obviously not quite as bad, but uh, watching Matt Wyman come back against Luis Pena, it was just new school versus old school, and the new school just seems like a step ahead. 
It's a different different type of fighter. And I still think that Melendez has that fighter spirit, and you know he didn't get finished, so good on him for that. And uh, you know he doesn't need it though. He's working at ESPN now. He's great at his job. Love watching him. I think uh, there's not much left for him to prove in the sport. And if you look at his recent uh, history in the UFC, it's not good. Um, he's lost uh, five in a row, and uh, six of his last seven. So that's uh, where we're at with uh, Gilbert Melendez. Marlon Vera. Beats uh, Nolan Hernandez uh, with a rear naked choke. And uh, Hernandez was pretty game for a guy who took a fight on short notice, and he'll stick around in the UFC. So good on him. Uh, Claudia Gadelia beats Randa Marcos. This, this fight was disappointing. It was uh, didn't deliver. I'm not sure what Randa's strategy was. I'm not sure what Claudia's strategy was either. But Claudia's striking was a lot sharper. She showed she was the higher-level fighter. Uh, Randa didn't go for any takedowns, and I thought that, that would have been her path to victory. And uh, unfortunately, she didn't go that path. And uh, ended up getting outstruck by Gedalia and uh, lost the unanimous decision. Uh, Song Yedong with, uh, I mean, the craziest knockout of the night had to be Masvidal, but this was clearly the second craziest knockout of the night. Nearly took Perez's head clean off with that crazy punch that uh, showed that this young man has a lot of power at the bantamweight division and is going to be a force to be reckoned with. And it's great for the UFC. You know, I, I mentioned to Dana White after the fight, I go, I know you don't cheer for specific fighters, but it must be nice to see Song Yedong and um, Zhang Veili have such success uh, for the Chinese market. The Chinese market is a huge market for them. Obviously, they aren't cheering for specific fighters, but they certainly like to see fighters from China develop into these kind of fighters. And, uh, you know, Song Yedong looks like the next one. And we'll talk to his coach, Uriah Faber, who's fighting in the co-main event this weekend at UFC Fight Night in Sacramento, his hometown, later on in the show. Uh, Edmund Shabazian. Beats Jack Marshman. Another first-round finish for Edmund. Only has one fight to his name that has not been won in the first round. And he does have a fight on topology. I don't know when that fight ended, but this guy's a killer. I, I've compared him to Francis Ngannou. He's like the Francis Ngannou of the middleweight division. He's getting these first-round finishes. You could even call him the Ronda of the middleweight division. Managed by Ronda Rousey. Coached by Edmund Tarverdian. And this is the thing that I think we need to focus on, is that Edmund Tarverdian was ridiculed, mocked, for being the coach of Ronda Rousey when she lost those two fights in a row. But Edmund can still coach. Edmund is coaching this young man, Edmund Shabazian, and he is doing a great job. Both Edmund and Edmund. Because Edmund is looking unstoppable right now. And you got to give Coach Tarverdian credit because a lot of people thought, thought he was a laughingstock, and I don't think that that's fair. You look at the success that Ronda Rousey had. He had to have been doing something right. And uh, he proves it right here with Shabazian that he... He can coach a winning fighter again in the UFC at the high level. And I, I'm happy to see that because I think he deserves to be more than a punchline. And um, I, think, I think that that was unfair. The biggest upset on the card, Chance uh, Rencounter defeats Ismail Nordiev via unanimous decision, just out-wrestled him. Um, Nordiev, the surprising thing is that Nordiev takes that fight against Prezerish on short notice, and Prezerish isn't able to do exactly the same thing. But maybe he has a, an easier time with a smaller body type Rencounter a lot taller than him and in stature and was able to wrestle him at will. And the first fight of the night, uh, Julia Avila beats, beats uh, Pandy Kiedza at an underrated fight. Three-round war between these two, uh, these two women. And it was, a, it was a fun one to watch. So um, kudos to them because that was uh, a fight that kind of got overlooked given all the other crazy stuff that happened on the night. But that was a really, really good one. And if you missed it, you should go back and check it out. There it is. UFC 239. Performance of the night bonuses. Nunez Masvidal. Jan Bojovic and Song Yidong. Get those ones right. Nobody else deserved those bonuses outside of those four. So good on them. And uh, 
that was just a, a great, great night. I had so much fun covering that event. It still feels incredible. It's still, I'm still riding the high from that great night of fighting. And, uh, you know, International Fight Week has had some issues in the past with fights falling out at the last minute. Uh, this week just went perfectly for the UFC. Uh, very good event. Only did one event that this week, and, and it delivered. So uh, International Fight Week, you can kind of say, is back because it took, uh, took a while. I asked Dana White this year, earlier this year if he wants to make um, uh, International Fight Week great again, in the words of his good friend. And he, uh, he agreed, and uh, it was great this past week. And I think that with the, build, the birth of the uh, UFC Apex, we're going to see a lot more of that kind of thing. So let's go to UFC Fight Night in Sacramento. We got uh, a headlining fight, Jermaine Durandame against Aspen Ladd. And uh, this is a really, really interesting one where I think the winner is going to fight Amanda Nunes at some point for the bantamweight title. And Amanda kind of has acknowledged that over the course of the week that uh, the winner of this fight should be next in line. Ladd, a small favorite over Jermaine Durandame. And uh, this is going to be an interesting one because it's kind of, uh, you know, Ladd is a young, young fighter, under 25 years of age, only 24. Uh, and uh, she's just made a, a great name for herself since coming to the UFC. She won her last three fights, wins over Eubanks, Evinger, and Lena Landsberg. Uh, Eubanks was a decision. Her only two decisions in her career were both against Eubanks, both decision wins against Eubanks in her professional career. So, um I'm interested to see how Aspen does against Jermaine Durandame, who's got a ton of experience, um, at least when you take her kickboxing into account as well. But 35 years of age, she's also won four in a row. or uh, She has won four in a row. Larissa Pacheco, Anna Elmos, Holly Holm, Raquel Pennington. Her last loss back in 2013, almost six years ago, Amanda Nunes, November of 2013. So uh, she would like to get that one back. I'm sure her only UFC loss. Um, and uh, I'm interested to uh, hear what Jermaine has to say. We're going to speak to her on the show right now. As she joins us on the TSN MMA show, she is the former women's featherweight champion of the world, the Iron Lady, Jermaine Durandamay. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to introduce this week's guest. I'm now joined by the Iron Lady, Jermaine Durandamay. You know, I had such a pleasure covering Jermaine at uh, UFC 208. Just your reactions to seeing yourself on the billboard outside of the Barclays Center was was something to behold. Yeah, that was that was awesome, man. I mean, come on, in Brooklyn Barclays Center, I was like, oh, that's me. How cool. <laughs> yeah, that was awesome. Absolutely. So, in your uh, UFC career, you haven't been super active. You fought uh, 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018. So one fight a year, and now in 2019, you're fighting again. Are you hoping to change that at all? Yeah, absolutely, man. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I I would love to stay more active. You know, I I just had the how do you call it the bad luck. I I wouldn't call it bad luck. You know, I just had two very bad injuries that you know that just kept me on the sidelines for a very long time. It was absolutely not by choice. If you look back at my career, my kickboxing career, I had times that I fought eight maybe nine times a year, you know, I love fighting. And I just, I honestly, I just told my mom, I think 45 minutes ago, I had her on the phone. I'm like, mama, I'm so happy to be here. You know, at this point, I, I can honestly say, this is what I love to do. This is my happy place. And a lot of people will be like, she's crazy, man. She's crazy. How can you be happy to be somewhere and know, you know, you're going to face somebody who's going to try to rip your head off? Yeah. That's a good question, but I still love being here. This is who I am, and I I realize that, and I appreciate that, and it, re- it makes me realize how blessed I am. 
Yeah, and I mean, as you mentioned, like uh, being a kickboxer, you're fighting all the time. So this must kill you to not be active <laughs> when you look back at the track record. Seriously, if I look back and then people were like, well, Jermaine, well, she doesn't fight that much. And I'm like, dude, seriously, this is not by choice. If you look back at my career, I had times that I fought a pro fight, and a week after I fought another pro fight, and two weeks after I fought another pro fight. I fought three pro fights in a month, you know, and luckily I, I finished them all by knockout. But, you know, at the other side, you know, you could go to full distance, you know, and that's what I love to do. I'm all, you know, I love this. And when the UFC called me five weeks, uh, now, well, almost five and a half weeks ago, you know, I'm like, uh, so you want me to do a training camp in six weeks? No problem. Let's do this. This is what I used to do. This is what I love to do. You know, turn the switch and go. Absolutely. So you joined the UFC six years ago. How many injuries would you estimate that you've had in that time? Oh, to be honest, let me be honest. I've been fighting kickboxing for 20 years. I have, let me think, almost 55 kickboxing fights I've never pulled out of a fight I never had an injury I had uh, let me think one wow <laughs> I got many injuries in MMA more than I could think of I think maybe five or six but like two very very bad injuries you know that kept me on the sideline for a pretty long time so Amanda Nunes has come forward and said she believes that this fight is for the number one contendership. You lost to Nunes several years ago. Um, of course, both of you are completely different fighters now. Um, is that what your hope is, is to, to get a title shot with a win here? You know, the thing is, and, and, and a lot of people keep asking me that, and to be honest, at this point right now, my only concern is Aspen Lett. I don't overlook Aspen Lett. You know, I cannot think right now about what's coming after Aspen Lett. Ask me this question Saturday night after the fight again, and, we'll, and I will have a straight answer for you. But at this point, right now, my focus is solely on Aspen Lett. I cannot overlook her. She's young. She's hungry. She's not 8-0 for nothing. I can think about Amanda, but it has no point in thinking about Amanda if I'm still facing a young and hungry up-and-coming girl that wants that title shot too. So at this point, I'm sorry, I don't have the answer. Ask me Saturday night. I did do some weird math before we did this interview and realized that Aspen Lad was four years old when you made your professional kickboxing debut. That's pretty wild. <laughs> Seriously, I felt I feel old when you say that. Don't say that. <laughs> but you're right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And this year I'm I'm fighting for twenty years. This is yeah, it's bizarre. <laughs> wow. Yeah, well, I have a little bit more experience than Aspen coming in Saturday night. A little bit more. <laughs> just a little bit. Just a little bit more. Uh, <laughs> just, a, just a tiny bit. So when you look at your last four fights, you haven't been taken down in those four fights. If this stays on the feet, do you feel like you have a massive advantage against Aspen Lad? You know, the thing is, and uh, th this is funny because I believe I have the advantage on the ground, too. I honestly believe. And it's the funny thing. I don't like to go to, it's not that I don't like to go to the ground. Don't get me wrong. I don't mind going to the ground. But there's a lot of people watching at home and a lot of people in the stands sitting there watching. They want to see a fight. They don't want to see us cuddle on the ground. They want to see a fight. And that's what I want to do. I want to fight. If she knocks me down and she jumps on top of me and she ground and pounds me, I respect that. 
if she takes me down and just wants to lay on top of me, you know, I don't, I just don't like that. If I'm going to knock somebody down, I'm jumping on there and I'm going to finish the fight there. You know, like I said, I don't mind going to the ground. Absolutely not at all. But I just, I just want to bring a fight. I want to make the people at home and in the stands excited, excited to see me fight, excited because at one point you never know what's going to happen. And that's what I want. So if the fight goes to the ground, I might surprise you all. You'll be going to be like, whoa, I didn't know Jermaine could do that. And it would be very ignorant of me if I only would train on my takedown defense, you know, and not be ready for what happened on the ground, for anything that could happen on the ground. I'm ready. If the fight goes there, I'm ready. And I might surprise everybody. This past weekend, uh, Holly Holm lost to Amanda Nunes in the co-main event. Uh, you've beaten Holly as well uh, for the featherweight championship of the world. What do you think Holly has left to prove in this sport? She's fought the highest of high echelon fighters like yourself, like Chris Cyborg, like um, Amanda Nunes, of course, Ronda Rousey. Do you feel like she has anything left to prove in this sport? Uh, to be honest, I don't think it's up to me to, to make that decision or say anything about it. I absolutely respect Holly. She's a great champion, and she has always have a great, great, has been a great champion in boxing and in MMA. Um, it's up to Holly. It's up to Holly. Whatever she wants to do in fighting still. You know, I don't think she... I personally don't think she has to prove herself. We, you know, I mean, she's a, has established her name. She is a respected fighter. And she's a respected champion. She has been and she will always be. You know, so whatever she decides, she has to decide for herself. I mean, I hope whatever she decides, she's happy with whatever she decides. And that's the most important thing. You know, a lot of people say if a fighter loses a couple times, oh, they're done. Why? Why are they done? They're done when they say they're done. You know what I'm saying? I mean, MMA is such a tricky sport. These gloves are so thin. People have no idea. It looks it looks like they're not that thin. I mean, every punch hurts. I can, you know, it hurts. And anything can happen in a fraction of a second. You know, sometimes you got to just expose yourself to get a combination in or to get the action going. you got to expose yourself, else it's going to be a very, very boring fight. So I, I think Holly will make the right decision for Holly. And whatever she decides, I respect her as a champion, I respect her as a fighter, and I wish her all the best. I certainly agree with one part of what you said, which is, uh, you know, who are we to tell somebody to retire? You're, you're talking about, off the top of this interview, how this is your happy place, how getting to fight Aspen Ladd, this is when you're at your happiest and, and you're most alive. Who are we, to, as, especially yeah. as members of the media, to say, you know, we think you should stop doing this? That's not really for anybody but that person to decide. And at the same time, I understand, because people want to protect a person. If somebody gets beat a, a couple times or gets knocked out, you know, you don't want to see somebody get injured very bad in a fight or in their afterlife after fighting. So I, I get it, you know, but it's not that they can't fight anymore or that they don't have the ability to win or they don't have the ability to do it anymore. You know, people are younger. Sometimes they are sharper, you know, and, you know, it, it's something, some, some, it's a feeling deep down inside. Every fighter knows at heart, when it's time to call it a quiz. 
you know. And some people are forced because people will tell them, no, you need maybe you need to consider. And I understand people saying, hey, you don't need to prove yourself. I mean, you don't get need to get knocked out a couple more times. I honestly agree. But at the same time, it's something a fighter needs to feel within their soul, because else I honestly believe it will be a forever undisclosed uh, chapter in a book. You know, you need to quit on your own terms. When you are ready to quit and you call it a quit to hang up your gloves, it needs to be something you feel deep down in your soul, something you feel like enough is enough. And there's nobody, nobody in this world that can decide it for you. You know, it's something you need to feel. And I think every fighter will feel it one day when it's time to call it a quiz. And finally, I'm sure you're asked this all the time. Let's go back to what happened with the uh, the featherweight championship. Um, you decided not to fight Chris Cyborg. Uh, since then, Cyborg has dropped the title to Amanda Nunes. Do you have any re- regrets about that? And, and what led you to, to reach that decision that, you know, you didn't want to defend the title specifically against her? Well, everybody keeps calling it like it's specifically against Cyborg that I didn't want to fight. It had nothing to do with that. It's nothing personal to Cyborg. Absolutely not. You know, it was, uh, the agreement was, uh, if I was winning the title, I've, and if you look back at every interview I gave, I've always said, I go back to 135. That's my weight division. I believe that's the more active weight division. I think that's the division where uh, I can gain the most. There is so much, there are so many girls in this weight division that are so tough, you know, and I bring a tough fight. The 145 division has, I think, two girls, three with Cyborg signed. You know, it's not an active weight division. And coming in this fight camp, uh, fight week, I still, I was still eating carbs. No, I was not water loading yet or anything. And I walked in here at 145. I'm a very small 145. If I just train hard, I walk around at 145. So being in a 145 division where I'm pretty small, you know, it's not a smart move. You know, that's why I make the cut to 135. And I've always said, the closest I get to a title shot and, and rematching or just rematching Amanda Nunes would be winning the 45 title. So I told the UFC, if I beat Holly, I want to fight Amanda Nunes. And we agreed on that until I won the title. And then I decided not to fight Cyborg because I wanted to fight Amanda Nunes. And that was the agreement. So it has nothing personally to do with Cyborg. I respect Cyborg to the fullest. It's nothing personal to her. It was just me going back down to 135, which I've said even before I was fighting Holly that I was going to do. Then why did they book that fight to begin with? I, that's the part that confuses me. If, if they knew your intention was to go back to 35, what was the upside? Well, I think maybe they thought they could change my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, I guess that makes sense. <laughs> I guess when you have a championship yeah. Around, your, yeah, around your waist, maybe they do think that they have a little bit more pull in that direction. But uh, you, you stuck with your convictions. Right, back you, can, th- you can put – exactly. You can put a little bit of pressure on somebody. Only the difference is I make my point, and I stood by the decision and the agreement we made before. So I didn't change my mind on it. Well, I'll say so, – and, and, and I don't live with regrets, you know, because every decision in life we make has consequences. And I, I've dealt with the consequences. I've served, well, I didn't serve my time yet. It's, it's a lifelong uh, thingy. But the thing is, 
I am so much stronger. I'm so happy. I'm so much physically and mentally stronger. That I'm at the same time. At the same time, you know, I'm very thankful. Well, I will say when I when I saw you on the poster when I saw you on the poster for this week against Aspen Ladd, my thought was I need to speak to Jermaine because I love seeing her in the main event, her picture on the posters. I know that you get a lot out of that, and I I knew that you would be at your happiest your happiest point in time. So that's why I really wanted to speak to you this week. Oh, Aaron, I truly truly appreciate it. Thank you so much. That was the Iron Lady, Jermaine Durandame. I think I must have freaked her out. I told her that her opponent was four years old when she had her first kickboxing match professionally. I don't think she liked that that much. But who would? You know what? Time waits for no one, I guess. And uh, this is, again, a very interesting card in Sacramento. Um, Some fights that I'm really looking forward to. Uh, Vince Morales versus Benito Lopez, I believe, opens the show, and that's a really good fight. You know, I think Benito Lopez has a lot of upside, and uh, I got to meet Vince Morales in Ottawa, and he's a a very uh, very interesting character as well. Um, I I think he relocated to Las Vegas. He's opened a gym there, and he's uh, looking ahead. And Benito Lopez uh, coming off a tough loss to Amani Bermudez. So that's going to be one that I really am interested in watching. You know, there's a lot of really kind of sneaky good fights uh, and evenly matched fights on this particular card. You've got uh, Livia Renata Souza, the Brazilian gangster, against Brianna Van Buren, who recently won the Invicta tournament um, at uh, Strawweight. And uh, Van Buren's an excellent wrestler, but Souza's a, a really good uh, grappler, also a decent wrestler, good striker. That's going to be a fun one. It's nice to see uh, Brianna Van Buren getting uh, a debut in the UFC. And then you've got the return of Nico Montano and the return of Juliana Pena, and they're facing again, facing one, one another, I guess. Uh, Juliana Pena had a child and took a lot of time off from the sport. Nico Montano won the flyweight title, uh, was supposed to fight Valentina Shevchenko last uh, year, ended up missing weight, and uh, as a result had the title stripped. Now she's back taking on Pena, and uh, this is going to be an interesting one. Uh, you know, Montano has moved up a division, and I think Montano is sneaky good. I think this is going to be a really interesting fight, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens here because Pena has also, was also really good, was very close to getting a title shot. So there's actually, I think, title implications here in this fight. Um, that's what I'm looking forward to seeing. Uh, Shaman Marais taking on Andre Feely. That's a good one as well. Feely fighting in his backyard, trains at Team Alpha Male, and uh, Shaman Marais uh, did really well uh, last year in uh, August, taking on, um, I don't remember who he beat. It was, uh, oh, Julio Arce. He beat Julio Arce. Uh, that was actually last November at UFC 230. Oh, no, sorry, I'm thinking of UFC 227. He beat Matt Sales at UFC 227 uh, last August. That's the fight I was thinking of because I remember interviewing him afterwards. Um, and Shaman Rice uh, was a, a highly touted prospect, and he's looked pretty good in the UFC. He's had some really good fights, win or lose. Uh, debuting fighter John Allen taking on Mike Rodriguez. Rodriguez, the biggest favorite on the card. Uh, John Allen, big Brazilian guy, um, who I don't know too much about, but I'm going to go and watch some tape on him today. Uh, Marvin Vittori returns off of a suspension, taking on Mutanch, Cesar Fajeja. I'm surprised that Vittori is the favorite in this particular fight. Um, I, I thought that Fajeja would be, uh, would be favored in this spot, um, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, Wellington Terman, the underdog against uh, Carl Roberson, Carl Roberson, uh, more than a 2-1 to favorite here uh, against the short-notice opponent. Uh, Mirsad Bektik uh, trains down at TriStar in Montreal, taking on uh, Josh Emmett, who trains at Team Alpha Male. Uh, Bektik, uh, a pretty moderate favorite here as well, uh, and I would favor Bektik in this spot, uh, although Emmett coming off a, a, a huge knockout win over Michael Johnson. Guy's got good hands. Uh, the only person to stop Bektik in the UFC is uh, Emmett's teammate, Darren Elkins, who's uh, taking on Ryan Hall, 
uh, a teammate of Bechtick. So that's kind of interesting. You got two TriStar versus uh, two Team Alpha Male guys in back-to-back fights. Uh, Ryan Hall, so much fun to watch. Such an intriguing fighter. A lot of people think he's he's you know can be boring at times, but his grappling is just otherworldly. And the the, the leg locks and knee bars and all of those leg attacks that he throws could give Elkins uh, headaches. Given that Elkins has a really good wrestling pedigree, but if this fight stays standing and Hall isn't able to get it to the ground, uh, Elkins should be able to to get a decision here. So this is one of those fights that really could go either way. Uh, Uriah Faber making his return to the octagon, taking on Ricky Simone. Uh, Faber, a three-to-one underdog in this spot, which I think is a really, really good price. I mean, Uriah Faber has always been such a stud. He's against a young guy in Simone, who uh, doesn't have as much experience, but has uh, is on a tear right now. Uh, I think he should be the underdog, but I don't know if he should be this big of an underdog. Um, and then you've got Jermaine Durandame, who we just spoke to, taking on Aspen Ladd. And if this fight stays standing, uh, I think that you have to give Durandame a bit of an edge. And uh, given that she hasn't been taken down in a long time. That's where this fight likely does take place. So that's going to be an interesting bout. But Ladd has been a finisher uh, her, for her entire professional MMA career. Her only two decisions have come against Sejara Eubanks in the two times that they've fought. Uh, Ladd winning both of those fights. Uh, so this is going to be a really interesting battle between uh, these two women. Uh, likely the next contender for the bantamweight title will be determined. And uh, we uh, did get a chance to catch up with the California kid, Uriah Faber. I saw him over the weekend uh, cornering Song Yadong at uh, UFC 239. He is making his return after a couple years uh, layoff, and he joins us now on the TSN MMA show. I'm now joined by the legendary California kid, Uriah Faber. Uriah, I saw you this weekend backstage. You were in the middle of a conversation, but I did get to see your baby. That is a very, very cute child. Oh, thank you, man. Yeah, we lucked out. She looks just like her mom. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, yeah, I've got a young daughter myself, and uh, there's nothing like it. I have two older sons, but nothing like having a daughter. It's pretty incredible. Oh, man, it's it's amazing. I'm, I'm enjoying it. Yeah, tell me about that. Tell me about how fatherhood has changed uh, the way you're thinking about things. And Did that have any anything to do with your decision to come back? I think it more had something to do with my decision to retire versus coming back. You know, I, uh, I've always had long-term goals and... and and the biggest one was to have a healthy family and and the way I was going, just my nose to the grindstone and, and, and focused on everything so fight related and, and getting older without, you know, even noticing it because you're you're doing the same things your whole life, uh, was part of the reason why I decided, Hey, I, I feel like I needed to take a break from this sport, uh, put myself on ice and and reassess, you know, the important things in life and, and obviously Having a baby, as you know, is 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 pretty incredible, and um, you know that, that was that was definitely part of it is is getting that 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 ball rolling, and feeling like that's kind of accomplished, and and knowing that there's a short window if, if I am going to jump back in to to be able to do it competitively, and now felt like the time. What clicked? What was that moment where you're like, you know what, I'm going to go back. Like I need to do this again. I I'm still good at this. I feel like I can compete with anybody in the division. Oh, I- you know, it was uh, it was a combination of things, but first and foremost, being inside the gym every day, you get motivated by guys that are doing the right thing. You get motivated by guys that are doing the wrong thing. Uh, on top of that, there's been some some enticing moments where the UFC's come to me with offers for fights on short notice, uh, weight above, and, and so um, after the last time that that happened, uh, I just said, you know, I'm going to get myself in good shape. I ended up taking a uh, another grappling match. It's my third one 
in retirement against high-level world-class guys and, and just kind of piggybacked off that momentum and, and getting my, my, my competitive juices flowing and, and you know, pulled the trigger when, when they were coming to sack. Yeah, it's, it's pretty, uh, pretty incredible to see you making a comeback. Um, Ricky Simone, um, he's offered to you. Was any, were any other names offered to you? Why him? Uh, or were you just willing to take whoever was available? You know, in the past, I've never really been. I mean, I've thrown suggestions out or whatnot, but, uh, um, you know, I don't really, you don't get to choose your opponent, per se. And so uh, they had originally offered me um, Gracie as the uh, as the main, ev- uh, main event in at, the UFC. At 45? Uh, at 145. Again, you know, these guys... They've offered me fights at 145 because they know that I'm I'm retired. I'm a little bit heavier than I was, but um, they offered me that. And then there was talks in the past about about Cub Swanson at 145, and, and I just figured, you know what? If I'm going to come back, I want to come back at 135s. And and uh, Shelby, this is the name that he threw out. He said, "Hey, this is who we have that will take the fight. That is a worthy opponent." And um, and so I said, well, I mean, I was thinking about it, and I'm like, watch the guys. You know, this kid's a tough, tough kid. He's definitely uh, going to be an exciting fight. He's going to be a competitive fight. So I said, all right, let's do it. It's more about me, not about whoever else is uh, across from me. Now, you said you had made some suggestions in the past. Can I? Can you share some of those names with us? Oh, no, those are the suggestions they shared with me. Okay, so you didn't make any suggestions for them. Suggestion. Okay, got you. No, I mean, really, if you look at the, if you look at the uh, at the uh, weight class, you know, TJ's out, got busted for cheating. Uh, he did. Cody and Dominic have been out. Cody and Dominic have been out. Uh, injuries. Cody's my teammate. Songs, my teammate. Everyone's teammates, and and. Uh, yeah, that is a great way of looking at it. I mean, aside from like a Pedro Munoz or Aljamain Sterling, I mean, these are guys that are probably wanting to stay in the top five of the division as well. It's a risky fight to take on an unranked Uriah Faber. I mean, you don't have a ton to gain if you're somebody who's ranked in like the top five, top seven to do something like that. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, and on the other side, uh, a lot of those guys were already scheduled to fight, you know, is coming off of fights, and um, I don't think it's 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 something that guys would be shying away from. That's for sure. But uh, you know, they've got a lot to gain, also. Even though I've got what I feel like is a lot to gain, for sure. So, looking at the odds on this fight, you're a pretty under overwhelming underdog, uh, which surprised me, um, especially given how much you've worked on your jujitsu over the years, and that you know Ricky Simone likes to implement a lot of a wrestling-based attack, and of course you're also very good with the wrestling-based attack, but um, were you surprised when you saw how big of an underdog you are, or do you not follow any of that stuff? Oh, I don't follow that stuff. I have, I have taken zero looks at that my entire career. So let's rewind to UFC 239. Uh, you were there this past weekend to uh, corner Song Yadong. Uh, tell me about this kid. I mean, what a phenomenal win over the weekend. Yeah, Song is a... Uh... He's a he's a talent man. I mean, as far as being a uh, a skilled fighter, he's got that absolutely. He's got some natural gifts. 
he's got a, a, a motivation that's 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 coming from deep inside of him to to show that he's the best in the world, and his work ethic shows that. So um, it's been nice. You know, he came out here probably three years ago. I guess I would put him in eighteen or nineteen to the train with Tam program, and we saw right away that uh, he he was he was an impressive impressive athlete and just kept on coming out. He'd, he'd have a little success and he'd come back out and he's been with us for, for a couple of years now. And to see him really coming of age and, and having the success he's having is pretty awesome. He's, he's a, you know, a champion in the making for sure. And, and he, he knows that he's, he wants to take his time, but, um, you know, the, uh, the opportunities for him are going to go through the roof, especially with the expansion in China, new PI, and, and him being the best Chinese fighter on the planet. Yeah, and we saw what's going on with uh, Zhang Veili, who's getting the shot against uh, Jessica Andrade, um, and how much they're really trying to push that market. Of course, you know, uh, Veili probably deserved the shot. Dana White kind of went down the line and explained why she's getting the shot, given the availability of the other fighters. But uh, it, it, it's obviously a massive opportunity for him and also for Team Alpha Male because it shows that uh, a lot of the lighterweight fighters, even from overseas, are, are able to make a good name for themselves training under you and, uh, and your team. Oh, yeah, man. We've had a, you know, a storied history in, in building champions and, and top contenders and and competitors in the UFC and, and all over the world, really. So uh, seeing uh, another guy that it's, you know, that's the way it happens. When you go through cycles where, uh, you know, in, in high school or in college, you got a four-year, five-year window to compete, and then the, the, the team changes and the team changes and the team changes. So um, that's that's happened throughout the years. There was a time where it was just me, Joseph, and Chad, and then Danny Castillo, and then you – you get the next phase of guys with Andre Feely and Josh Emmett, and uh, you know it keeps going like this where we we start uh, you know the next generation far out, and then they all of a sudden are right there in your face, and, and that's what's happening with Song and some of the other guys you're seeing. Has there been something of a transition period? I know Justin Buckles left the team as the coach, uh, and there seemed to be a little bit of um, a, a rough period so to speak, for Team Alpha Male, and now things are getting you know right back on track. Um, was there a little bit of an adjustment period after uh, Justin, I guess, was downgraded from head coach, and now there's kind of a, a different kind of coaching structure there? You know, it's kind of a misconception of that whole thing. We don't really know what's going on with Buckles. He's, you know, he's kind of on his own page. He was welcome to, to stick around and, um, and just kind of melt away on his own. So... Uh, it's it's been the same to be honest. It's been the same for years. I mean, people like to buy into stuff and people like to try to to, to get drama going. But uh, we've had the same consistent thing. We've had a lot of success uh, over the last couple of years, and I don't even know how long he's been gone now. I guess a couple of years maybe. But uh, things are moving moving quickly. I think you know the the first big shift was when when TJ and and all that stuff was going on. So. That, you know, people. The more notoriety you get, the more people are, are are sticking your nose in the business. And and the truth is, this hard work and mentality, believing in yourself, and and creating a great program is has always been the case. And we've always had a lot of coaches. I mean, not every coach buys himself a, a photographer to follow him around and and starts promoting. Uh, we've got coaches in here that you may not know their name, but we've got uh, amazing staff. 
with you, you were able to jump right back in because you were in the testing pool. Uh, you never really withdrew um, despite having retired. Another individual that's in the testing pool is Chris Holdsworth, who's one of the coaches of your team. Um, now, obviously, his issue was very well documented that he uh, he suffered a concussion, one of which was, I guess, you know, at the hands of TJ Dillashaw. Um, is Chris Holdsworth thinking of making a comeback at all, or is he just staying in the testing pool in case um, he does get, you know, his health does improve in that regard? You know, Chris, first off, talk about a, uh, a genius mixed martial artist. That guy's got so much knowledge. I mean, he was undefeated in the UFC. He won the ultimate fighter with all finishes. He's has such a bright career in front of him, but I don't think he's really focused on, on fighting at the moment. I mean, he's, he's given me no indication that he wants to, uh, he's doing a great job as a, as a head coach for us over here, along with, uh, the rest of the coaches on staff. And, um, he's, uh, he's a guy that could step in right now and compete for a world championship undoubtedly. And, and I know that, I think he knows that, but um, it's just a decision that, that he would have to make. And, and he hasn't made any headway towards, towards that direction at the moment. Does it break your heart to see what kind of happened to him? I mean, as you mentioned on the ultimate fighter, he was just such a stud. He, he uh, looks like he's got all the promise in the world. And then whatever happened in terms of his head injuries uh, and his precautions that he's taking towards getting back in the octagon, getting, having to watch him and, and knowing how good he is, does that hurt you? It did, man. I mean, of course, you know, you don't sit and dwell on things and he's, he's not like that either. He just moves on and enjoys life and does his thing. But um, really, I feel like, he was online to be a world champion. He was, he was, he was working towards that, believing that and, and, and really, you know, the best in the room. And, and, uh, as far as a guy that can knock guys out and submit guys and, and has a strange, uh, body type for the weight class and all these things added up, you know, he, he has so much potential and we're really blessed to have him contributing to the team as a coach. And, and, uh, I know in my heart, and I think he knows that if he wanted to step in and, and have a go at, at being the best in the world. It's it's uh, it'd be an easy thing to do, but um, again, I'd have to ask him, or you'd have to ask him on, on that in particular. Now you've spoken a lot about TJ and his situation in recent weeks, but how if if I were to kind of change directions here, how much of what happened to Chris do you feel is TJ's responsibility? Um, if you were to assess that, you know, I don't want to I don't want to get into that. That's kind of Chris's deal and TJ's deal. Um, as far as like how they interpret that, I, I don't want to speak on on my interpretation just because I mean, like it, it's it's funny. People are always asking about about TJ, and I'm just like, you know, was TJ? Uh, he, he was not. He was not the best training partner in the room. I'll just say that uh, has a temper and he's competitive. Um, as far as you know, where the rest of that 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 story goes, you know, I, I'd, I'd rather have Chris talk about it because. It's kind of his personal business, and it's kind of an emotional deal for him. I understand. All right. Well, Uriah, best of luck against uh, Ricky Simone. I mean, this is a tough opponent. Uh, since you've retired, he's been undefeated, so he's, uh, he's on a bit of a hot streak. But you're in Sacramento. You'll have, uh, I'm sure, a, a massive amount of friends and family there for this comeback. And uh, we look forward to seeing it this weekend. It's going to be great, and it airs up here on TSN in Canada. Awesome. Looking forward to it. That was the California kid, Uriah Faber. Back in action this weekend. I can't wait. You know, I, uh, when I first started following MMA, it was when Uriah Faber was really young and in the WEC, and was, he was the guy. Like, he was, he was the guy to beat, the champion. And uh, he was just tearing through competition back in the WEC days. He was the face of the WEC. And uh, it's been so great to watch his progression as a professional. 
since that time to where he is now. Uh, you know, so many title shots in the UFC, fell short, and uh, might be the best fighter to never win a championship in the UFC. He's certainly in that conversation. Uh, and you start looking at a guy like Alexander Gustafson who uh, retired, he, he, you know, his name's in that mix. Um, but uh, Uriah Faber is back. He's back for more, wants to uh, keep those con- competitive juices flowing, and we'll take on Ricky Simone in his backyard, Sacramento, California. So uh, let's take a look at uh, the Contender Series from this past week. What a night. That was just incredible. You know, there was the best thing that happened to Contender Series this season is that they had that one-week break to break up the monotony of those first two shows. The second show particularly was a real slog. They had that week off. The fighters all came in heavily motivated for that, uh, that third episode on the, on the season. And as a result... We saw some absolutely incredible wins uh, from the five fighters on the show, all of whom got contracts. You get a contract, and you get a contract. You know, I went on Twitter and said the two that stood out to me most was Mackie Patolo and Hunter Azure. Um, you know, Azure, this guy looks like the total package. I think that he's going to be a contender at bantamweight. His wrestling is phenomenal. Off the charts grappling. His striking looks really good. I think we're going to see this kid make some noise in the UFC. And then we saw Mackie Patola with those body shots. Those were brutal. Absolutely brutalized Sumter with those uh, body shots. And, uh, you know, he's going to move back down to welterweight where I think he's going to be a force. Really, all these guys look like they have big upside. Uh, you know, Trocoli, six foot six light heavyweight. Very similar char- uh, charisma to Johnny Walker. They're both actually managed by uh, Lucas Latkus. And uh, I think Tricoli has a, a good future in the UFC as well. Uh, I think he should move down to 185 if he can make that cutoff. I mean, he's fought as light as 170 uh, and has fought at 185 previously. I think at 185 at 6'6", six six, he'd be a really tough guy to stop. Uh, Joe Selecki looked fantastic. I just don't know what to make of him because we barely got to see any of him. He had that fast finish in the first round, looked really good um, for that duration of time. Uh, I don't know what to expect for this kid. I just do know that he's really good. <laughs> you know, from what we've seen, you can tell this kid's really good. And then Jonathan Pierce showed a very well-rounded game uh, in his fight against uh, Morales. Was it Morales or Rosales? Uh, let's take a look here. I don't want to mess up the kid's name. Pierce defeats. Why can't I find the, find his name here? Oh, because I'm going backwards. All right, let's start from the Jacob Rosales. In the third round. And Rosales, according to uh, my colleague Amy Kaplan, a fan side, had said that uh, Rosales came into that fight with a broken leg. That's pretty unbelievable. That he was able to, A, do that, and B, get through a commission uh, who are supposed to prevent that kind of thing from happening. I reached out to the commission and, uh, of course, radio silence. No shock there. Anyhow, that was uh, the Contender Series for this week. And it was uh, nice to see that show bounce back after uh, two weeks of, you know, not the most exciting action. Some good stuff in the first week. But uh, I think there were nine consecutive decisions, and now we have a week with uh, four out of five winners you know, getting the finish uh, and the one that did get the decision looking dominant and scoring a contract as of, uh, a result of his performance. So good on him. Uh, next week I'll be back. Hopefully Joe's here with me. I'm not sure what his schedule is like. It would have been really nice to catch up with him after what happened at UFC 239, and hopefully we do so next week. Uh, so until then, thanks for uh, tuning into this show and enjoy the fights this weekend. Thanks for listening to the TSN MMA show. For all the latest UFC news, visit tsn.ca slash UFC.